Hola, hola. What's up? You are listening to Brown Raíces, a space where I talk about the rich Chicanx history and cultura, discuss the issues affecting brown communities, and where we explore badass, groundbreaking Chicanx and Latinx literature. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm so happy you're here, and whether you are walking, driving, at the bus stop, on the bus, in el gimnasio, haciendo quehaceres, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jesse Rubio, and today I am talking about a topic that I am deeply passionate about. It's about activism and education. But not just any activism, it is student-led activism. Today we're delving into the East LA walkouts or the Chicano blowouts of 1968, an inspiring student-led movement for educational equity. Specifically, we'll be discussing the schools involved and the instrumental role played by Sao Castro in organizing these historic protests. Okay, sin más rodeos, let's get into it. Rapidito, before I begin, I want to apologize for ghosting the podcast for a month. End of May and June have been reset months for me. So my husband is a film and production professor at a community college. Since he's an educator, I have the fortune and curse of having him at home during the summer. Just kidding, not a curse. But it means that we use this time to visit family and take care of home stuff like deep cleaning and decluttering. My little one also has a break from his escuelita. My family is in LA and his is in Texas, and I just love going back home. It's a time for me to reboot, reset, spend time with family, enjoy my nieces and nephews, go to my favorite spots in LA, have the best tacos. We also went to Disneyland with my mom and sisters in June, and my little sister graduated from her medical assistant program. It was a proud moment for all of us. And in Texas, we visited San Antonio for the first time. We went to the Riverwalk and the Alamo, and I want to go back to explore a little bit more, especially the Mercadito and the Mexican barrios. But nonetheless, I loved the Riverwalk. So if you're ever in San Antonio, the Riverwalk is a must. My bestie also visited us in Phoenix from Palo Alto for her birthday, and we went to Phoenix Hurricane Harbor and had a nice dinner. So that was really nice and heartwarming. I have also spent more time reading. Two poetry books that I've read that I 100% recommend are Promises of Gold by Jose Olivares and Woman Without Shame by Sandra Cisneros. I am currently reading Hood Feminism, which is also very good, but I have not finished it yet. But if you do get a chance, I do recommend Promises of Gold, Women Without Shame, which are two badass Chicano poets. So go and check them out. Also, I wanted to let you guys know that moving forward, I want to post every other Tuesday. Un martes sí y un martes no. That way I can deliver the best content, longer episodes, and it gives me time to edit and upload. As a working mom, you can imagine how things go. It can get a little hard, but I do want to be consistent. So that is my commitment to you. Okay, ahora sí, let's get into it. The Chicano Blowouts of 1968. You probably heard 1968 and was like, wait, hold up. That was during the Chicano movement. And if you thought that, you are correct. The Chicano Blowouts were in fact during El Movimiento. And we can say that it was inspired by the mobilization of farm workers. The Chicano Blowouts of 1968 were on a whole other level. 
Mexican-American students in high school came to an awakening, or like Paul Freire would say, conscientiousness. They began to see the inequities and systemic inequalities as well as overt discrimination in their schools, and they decided to take action. Now keep in mind that this was a decade full of civil unrest. Young adults were learning tactics and methods for demanding change. In the 1960s, East Los Angeles was home to about 100,000 Mexican-Americans. It was considered the largest barrio in the United States. It was a segregated part of L.A., and most of the time, children growing up there didn't realize they were segregated due to historical redlining. Parents and recent immigrants would always tell their children that the path to success in this country, or in order to reach El Sueño Americano, the famous American dream, they needed an education, so school would be priority number one, two, and three. The reality was harsh, though, and the idea of reaching the American dream was far out of reach for brown people. The reality was that only one in four Chicano students were completing high school. The dropout rate, or I should better yet say, the push-out rate was high. Students' needs were not met in school. They were treated like second-class citizens, not allowed to speak their language, and if they did, they would get in trouble, scolded, suspended, and discriminated against by their teachers and school leaders. Classrooms were overcrowded. Their curriculum lacked culturally relevant content, and the majority of them were not enrolled in AP courses. The school board and school leaders were not doing anything for them or their academic success. It's important to mention that the parents of students in LAUSD schools in East LA were earning only two-thirds the wage compared to what other residents in Los Angeles earned. The wage disparities 100% affect and impact the children and youth. Moctezuma Esparza, who's a Chicano filmmaker and was also a student activist of that period, he mentioned in a documentary called Chicano taking back the schools, which I recommend everyone to watch, he says that growing up he felt ashamed of having parents that didn't speak good English and having to translate and feeling ashamed of just being Mexican. Others mentioned feeling embarrassed of having to take tortillas and frijoles to school. All of these feelings were not natural, but rather internalized because adults in schools suppressed the identities and language of Chicano students in order to forcibly assimilate them to a country that has never treated them like Americans. Students were taught that the culture of their parents was a burden, and it would hinder their success. Students were growing angry, tired, and frustrated with the school conditions. They clearly saw the signs of prejudice and discrimination. Carlos Muñoz Jr., an educator, recounts in the same documentary that when he was an honor student in high school, the counselor asked what his parents did for a living, and he told her that his dad was a laborer, that he worked with his hands, and she said to him, you know what, that is a very honorable profession. You should follow your father's footsteps. Hija de su chingada madre is what I would have said. Now let me back up. There is nothing wrong with being an obrador or a jornalero. Al contrario, they are honorable jobs. But to say to a child or a youth that they shouldn't strive for more is just nuts. 
teachers who were supposed to bring the best out of every student presumed that brown students were predestined to work with their hands and not with their minds. Sadly, that's the mentality a lot of adults continue to have. A lot of educators in urban schools have a deficit thinking towards English learners and students of color, and it affects their academic outcomes. Things have improved since the 1960s, but there is yet a lot of work to do in our education system to better support the ever-growing Latinx population or BIPOC students in general. In the 1960s, girls would also take homemaking classes to learn to be good housewives. Their teachers would say that they should pay attention because little Mexican women like them would most likely be cooking and cleaning for other people. A la chingada con eso is what I would have said. Just kidding, it's easy to say now, but goddamn, those were rough times. Things got better, though, because students were about to organize and demand for educational reforms because we all know once you see clearly, you can't unsee, and it gets hard to live pretending like nothing is wrong. Students were noticing that some students were tracked into academics and enrolled in AP courses and college readiness classes, while others were tracked into the shop classes like auto mechanics and vocational classes. Now, I do want to emphasize that there is absolutely nothing wrong with vocational careers, but these students didn't even have a choice. They were tracked into those courses without an option. Come to think of it, every time I go to East LA, I see a lot, and I mean a lot of car shops and mechanics or tire shops in every corner, and now I'm piecing it together, it might come from these tracking systems from the 60s. Wow. Okay, this is where it all began. Students realized that they were not alone in their feelings of frustration and complaints about their education. And students like Paula Crisostomo Victoria Castro, Fred Resendez, among other Chicano students, decided to do a survey. They gathered information from students where they said that they didn't get college advisement, they were pushed out of school, discipline was not fair, they had low reading levels. These students went from, we want better food, to, we want to go to college. They were mobilizing. They knew that they had the lowest reading rates in the east side and were ready to present their survey data to school board members in their district. Let that sink in for a little bit. Students wanted bilingual instruction, Mexican-American courses, an end to corporal punishment, and the hiring of more Mexican-American teachers and counselors. Those were their demands. And the reality was that teachers weren't really concerned for the kids or their success beyond high school. Now, I'll let you take a guess on what the school board members did with the survey data and their demands. For those of you that do not know what school board members do, they pretty much make the decisions on how a district is run. They determine the curriculum, where the funding allocations go, the quality of teachers, resources, technology, and programs in schools. You get the point. Well, This school board pretty much patted them on the back and threw away the results of their survey. And that, my friends, is what politicized these extraordinary Chicano students. Dr. Ernesto Galarza, a labor activist, said that the traditional perception of the Mexican-American community was about to be challenged. Bottled-up frustration was about to explode in the East L.A. schools. 
students had gained knowledge of their constitutional rights and learned the tactics and tools necessary to rattle the cage and shaken up the system to see change. So what did they do? They would protest for their rights and become young Chicanos who asserted their identity. Lincoln High School served as the initial catalyst for the protest. Students at Lincoln High were determined to challenge the status quo. They realized that the system was not going to change unless they became involved and took direct action. Lincoln High School students were able to get other schools in East L.A. to join the cause, including Garfield High School, Roosevelt High School, Wilson High School, and Belmont High School. These schools became key players in the blowouts. It showed solidarity and the shared frustration among Mexican-American students. Students also needed the support beyond student body. Sal Castro, who was a teacher in Lincoln Heights, played a major role and was the biggest catalyst in the walkouts. This guy is a legend. Students also had the support of some parents and the community, including the Brown Berets and college and grad students that were involved in developing UMAS, which stands for the United Mexican-American Students. They were committed to support these students for the betterment of the Brown communities and their education. A massive walkout was decided for March 1st, 1968, at 9 a.m., while all students were in class. Everyone was going to walk out. The signal was, blow out, blow out, and students would stand up and walk out. So at 9 a.m., that's exactly what happened. And it just gives me chills to think about that moment. Students walked out and they were yelling in the hallways, walk out, walk out. And as they walked out, students were chanting, Chicano power, ya basta, we want change. 4,000 students walked out of five schools that day. And by the end of the week, 16 schools were mobilized with over 10,000 students marching the streets. Let's take a moment to let that sink in. More than 10,000 brown students marching the streets with picket signs united for the same cause, a better education and an end to discrimination against brown people. I'm sure you know where the media stood while all this was happening. Students were portrayed as violent and organizing to overthrow the system. Then they were finding someone to guilt. Of course they fucking were. White supremacists doing what they do best, keeping the people of color oppressed. So they pointed fingers at the Brown Berets, which was a group of Chicanos that formed in 1967 who were inspired by the Black Panther Party. They were all about standing against police brutality and fighting racism. The Brown Berets were big supporters of the Chicano student activists and were marching with students during the walkouts. They pretty much represented security. News reporters and police were targeting them. The LA Tribune accused them as agitators, even though they did not organize the walkouts. The walkouts continued for several days and students were gathering as Chicanos and not as school rivals. They were having their demonstrations as civilians and as U.S. citizens with a right to protest. Police officers would show up to the demonstrations to find someone to arrest. Those fuckers always racial profiling. Now remember, the goal was to get the school board members to meet the student demands. But let's talk a little bit about Sal Castro. 
This man was the man. He played a pivotal role in the East L.A. blowouts. Castro was a dedicated teacher at Lincoln High School, and he witnessed the injustices faced by his students on a daily basis. He understood that change was desperately needed. Sal Castro was more than just a teacher. He was a mentor and a catalyst for student activism. He brought to East L.A. the principles and practices of Martin Luther King and Chavez. Castro organized the Mexican-American Youth Leadership Conference with high school and college students, and they formed a Chicano coalition and came up with the demands. So the list of demands, I think, was about 38 in total. They held meetings and discussions where students could voice their concerns and plan their actions. He fostered an environment where students felt supported and encouraged to challenge the existing system. Castro ensured that the protests remained peaceful, focused, and effective on the message that they wanted to convey. So from March 1st to the 8th, around 15,000 students walked out of their classrooms in protest thanks to the organization of collective groups who together formed the Education Issues Coordinating Committee, the EICC. And this committee was very important because they continued to voice the student concerns even beyond the walkouts. Also, if you're wondering if the walkouts were peaceful, no, they were not. Because LAPD beat the crap out of students during the walkouts as if they were committing crimes and as if they were adults. It got nasty, but not because of the students. It was because of the police and how they were treating the students in their peaceful protest. They beat the shit out of them. And they were trying to scare them to make them stop the protest. But it only put more fuel to the fire. Soon after the walkouts, on March 31st, the police arrested 13 of the organizers on felony conspiracy charges. And each would face up to 66 years in prison for conspiring the walkouts. And yes, Sal Castro was one of them. And I should also say that the demands were rejected by the L.A. Board of Education. Twelve of the 13 organizers were released, but Sal Castro remained in prison for about three months. Let that sink in for a moment. A teacher was imprisoned for wanting to better the educational experiences of his young brown students. He was released on bail in June of 1968, but he was fired from his teaching position. Yes, he was fired. Just cruel and unfair, but the Raza was not about to let that happen. So demonstrations continued to happen, but this time it was so that Sal could have his job back. And after days of sit-ins at the office, which then became sleep-ins, the LA Board of Education reinstated Sal Castro's job. And at the end of this historical moment, there weren't any immediate changes to the schooling and the demands that the students had. They were rejected. Moctezuma Esparza mentions in the documentary that no matter what the outcome was, the one thing that changed completely and profoundly was how all brown students viewed themselves. The change was within every Chicano. Within 18 months of the student walkouts, the number of Chicano students attending UCLA increased from 40 to 1,250. 
and every college in the Golden State up and down the coast had multiplied the number of Chicano students significantly. The 1968 blowouts is considered one of the largest student-led marches in American history. They represented a call to action for access to education for Latinx youth in the nation. Y con eso, mi gente, we come to an end of this Brown Raices episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Chicano blowouts of 1968. Don't forget to follow on Instagram at Brown Raices for quotidian things. And if you like this episode, make sure you share it with your familia and friends. Remember, I am uploading every other martes, so I'll catch you next time. Hasta la próxima!